Hello there. You're listening to The Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. We'll also be giving our thoughts on the first installment of the Before Trilogy, Before Sunrise, because each film in that trilogy has come out nine years after the previous one. And if that uh, little routine were to continue, the fourth film would have come out in 2022. Mm -hmm. Sadly, there is no fourth film. But instead, we will be talking about it given the ninth anniversary of the most recent film that came out. We'll start with the beginning before sunrise. talk about the game awards which has nothing to do with films or tv but al pacino was there so therefore it is film related so i'm i'm reading these notes in our script here about the the (laughs) talking points you want to hit and i did not watch the game awards so go one by one here and explain what all of these mean that's perfect so you didn't see there's only one there's only one written here that that i can get from from just clearly reading it so what, what what does all this mean go one by one Okay, well, first of all, so as I mentioned, Al Pacino was there, showed mm. up there randomly, no clue why, but I mean, he was giving the best performance award. He wasn't invited, he just showed up. <laughs> he did he say, he, he mentioned that he's not a gamer, but his kids <laughs> love him, and so he's just here. They love the game. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he, he goes up there and he presents the best performance award, and Christopher Judge got a war. Uh, Kratos, he won that. And then sense. he gave like a nine minute speech. Christopher Judge did? Yes. God damn. He like kept trying to play him off. The man would not stop talking. Uh, so that was a big one. This one you will have to look up because okay. it's just something you need to see. I In the notes, it says hype orchestra guy. Yeah. At the end of the ceremony, as they're doing the nominees for the the game of the year, you know, the big final award, mm-hmm. they play the scores of all the games which is pretty cool although i don't think it was very distinguishable like each of them um but there's one guy who was in the orchestra who plays like four different instruments and he's going so hard the whole time <laughs> he was fantastic to watch it was amazing so yeah you gotta just look that up look up hype orchestra guy game of the year awards i will be a fantastic few minutes mm. and then the game that won game of the year Game of War or God of War was sweeping all the other things, but it didn't win the big one. That was actually Elden Ring. So then the developers go up there. They're Japanese, so you have the one guy, and then you have his translator. And then you see there's a couple other people on the stage too. And so you're assuming, okay, but it's not like the Oscars where like the whole team goes up. There's only yeah, a handful sure. of people. Of course. But you have the like presenter off to the side. You have the two people there that winner and then the translator who i think was also part of the game there's like 100 percent, and there's some other dude that's like hanging out in the back and slowly starts maneuvering his way towards the middle of the screen so he's in between the two people that are standing at the mic Mm. accepting the award and the kid he's like 15 or 16 something like that he doesn't look japanese 
like maybe I, I don't know what the thing is. Maybe it's a really young developer who's just looks super young. Yeah, sure. Or it's one of their sons. Who knows? Um, but then once they say their final words, you have basically the ending sweeping shot where it's like pulling out and everyone's applauding and everything. But you see the kid goes up and he walks up to the mic and then starts speaking. He's like, hello, hello. I want to nominate this award. I'm going to dedicate this award to because he had some accent, which I still I'm not sure exactly what it was. But he's like, I want to dedicate this award to my reformed Orthodox rabbi, Bill Clinton. Those are the exact words he said, which was, again, it was hard to pick out exactly what he was saying. So we had to like rewind it to figure it out. But Bill Clinton was certainly mentioned. And then everyone, so the applause, everyone was like clapping because it was a game of year and they said their yeah. piece and it's in the show. But then once the kid came out and said that, everyone's confused. <laughs> they probably didn't understand what he was saying. But if you could understand what he's saying, it still makes no sense. What does that mean? My reformed Orthodox rabbi, Bill Clinton. That's pretty great. Uh, then you could see as well in the big like master shot wide yeah. of the pool uh, venue, you could see mm -hmm. there were people, security members on stage going towards him. So this oh, was a random kid who got up on stage somehow, was there the entire time that they were giving the acceptance speech, and then came on to say his final few, I guess his message to this rabbi, Bill Clinton, and then he was getting taken off. It's pretty and incredible. So yeah, that was a great <laughs> little finale. So the game of year awards there. So that was a fun. Yeah. This fun seems like one of those things that's going to fuel a lot of conspiracy theories. You know what I'm talking well, about? I was, well, yeah, I was wondering too. I was like, you know, with all the Kanye stuff going on lately, I was like, is this a particular message? Is he just a troll? Is he Jewish? And this is some sort of, I don't know, like message. But it didn't seem to be that. It just seemed like some dude goes up and he's like, yeah, I'm going to say some stupid or I'm going to give a shout out to this person. Who? You know, his his rabbi might really be named Bill Clinton. Who knows? Incredible. But yeah, if it's some sort of political message, I don't know why, like the Jewish thing being tied in with Bill Clinton, that just doesn't mm -hmm. make sense. There's like, I think a lot of other names he could have thrown out that would have made it more sure. of a political message. But again, he was just like a kid. He was like 15 years old or something. So I don't know if he was that intent about making a political stance. I think he was just trolling. But... Yeah, what a way to... It wouldn't, it wouldn't be the Game Awards without somebody trying to troll the audience. Exactly. So, you know, the Oscars had the slap. Game of the yeah. Awards had the shout-out to the Rabbi Bill Clinton. I wonder what's next. These award shows. <laughs> yeah, they're getting a little With, off the rails. There's something. There's always something. Yeah. And another piece of news. We've got some stuff about the DC Cinematic Universe from The Hollywood Reporter. It came out a few days ago. Did you see this stuff about Wonder Woman? I didn't. I didn't see this stuff. Well, it was po it was one day after. This article came one day after okay. Al Gadot posted on her social media a big message about, oh, I love the fans. I'm so glad to play this part, Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. I can't wait for the next chapter. And then the next day, the headline reads, Wonder Woman 3 canceled. Damn. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff. So they said, like that was a big headline, but what they really meant was, in its current form, Wonder Woman 3 will not move forward. Um, and so we, everyone's trying to figure out what exactly that means. And it's been confirmed recently that basically Patty Jenkins was, you know, she turned in the script for it. She was given notes. She was told this isn't really part of the direction we want to go in here. Can you go rewrite it? Apparently she said no. 
And so now she's off the project. And that's what we know. I mean, Wonder Woman 3 will still happen, I'm sure. Gal Gadot will probably still be in it. But there was a lot of other questions raised since that same report said that there's going to be no Man of Steel 2. No. Jason Momoa is not going to be Aquaman anymore. No. Maybe recast as Lobo. No. There's... They're talking about Black Adam. Future is up in the air as well. So all that stuff is being mentioned. And again, it just seemed very far-fetched. I don't think James Gunn and Peter Safran would have made those decisions already. Yeah, that'd be kind of quick. How it already got leaked. So, yeah. Unless they really want to go for a clean slate, you know, just start over. Yeah, that was the thing they were saying of like, they'll just go for a full reboot, which... It's got to be the first thing that they had to talk about anyway. It's like, what if we're going to plan the future, are we going to try and fix what has been done or just start from scratch? Right. Exactly. What would you do if you were in their situation? So I'm glad you brought that up, Dylan. Because that <laughs> was one of the, the ideas for an face. episodes that we had earlier this year, back when The Flash was still supposed to come out this year. Yeah. And that was supposed to serve as a reset or however they fix this universe, they're going to do it with The Flash. Sure. Um, and so I thought it'd be a fun episode if we were to talk about or bring our yeah. pitches for what we would do in this position. And of course, that was before, you know, Gunn and Saffron got yeah. in there. So Which is interesting because now, now their vision isn't necessarily what the vision of The Flash is. So they may need to reboot it even further after The Flash. Very true. That That is... That is something to keep They might mind. see a cut of the flash. Yeah, they might see a cut of the flash and go, guys, you fucked it up again. We got to we gotta start over. Mm-hmm. That'd be something. Another piece of news that came out related to this was the idea of the Michael Keaton Batman film that was apparently in the works. Mm-hmm. It was going to be a Batman Beyond film. Interesting. That's canceled as well because they're not going to emphasize Keaton's Batman anymore. Since Makes Batgirl sense. got taken out and now Batman Beyond will also be taken out. Yeah. But... We'll talk about it more, but I think it'd be a fun show to do sometime. That would be fun. Doing a little cinema showdown where we can pitch our things and see. But it is, yeah, it's one of those things of, do you reboot it entirely or do you try and piece things together as they are? I think it's more interesting to try and piece them together as they are. It's like another pitch show, like when we did Jurassic World. That's a good idea. Exactly, yeah. So that'll be fun. That will be so fun. Do you want to do it? Do you want to bring your own pitch? Because I thought before you didn't, you were like, getting plugged out of the you know superhero stuff oh i'm completely out of it but i would love i would have fun doing it like it's still fun to be creative and come up with ideas i just have no interest in actually watching these products (laughs) i'm getting exhausted by it but the idea of like putting myself in james gunn's shoes and peter saffron's shoes and trying to figure out like everything that has led up to this because i've seen all the movies everything that's led up to where we are now what would i do with what I'm given. And of course, we're operating on very limited information. We don't know what actors' contracts look like or things like that. But just creatively speaking, with what we're given, what would you do? It's more like a problem-solving thing than... Yeah, full creative control. It's more like a problem-solving exercise than an actual full-on creative thing. You know, just like, this is a big problem. You're in charge of this uh, cinematic universe that is ultimately failing. Not necessarily the box office, but critically, just a bombing. And that is starting to take a toll on the box office. How do you revive it in the same way that Marvel has been just succeeding? You know, how do you keep it fresh? I like the idea of trying to solve that problem. Not necessarily pitching actual plot lines with superheroes. 
gotcha. that that's not as interesting as coming at it from per se an economic standpoint of how to create a more thriving business and knowing that the solution has to be a creative answer and knowing that I'm a creative person. That sounds very interesting. Cool. Well, that's yeah. where James, that's what James Gunn is in right now. That's the, that's the predicament that he's found himself in is that he's a creative person put in a very business oriented role and he has to create a business oriented solution using his creativity. And I think True. that's an interesting challenge for him. And I think that would be an interesting challenge for us. Nice. Well, that's awesome. So yeah, that's something to look forward to on the horizon next year. Yeah. At some point, we'll have a little cinema showdown about restoring the DC universe. That would be a lot of fun. In other news, Bong Joon-ho just announced his new movie's release date and gave a little teaser trailer. It is called Mickey 17, and it is starring Robert Pattinson, and it releases March 29th, 2024. Did you see the teaser, Ryan? I did see the teaser. It's very much a teaser. Yeah. So... <laughs> one shot but man does it look cool yeah i'm it's just sci-fi i'm interested in it yeah. obviously bong joon ho is a very renowned director very skilled and he's you know he's got his roots in the sci-fi anyway so yeah in returning to that will be quite interesting for sure in other news it has been announced that rush hour four is in the works there's been a lot of rumors over the last several years as to the idea of them getting a rush hour four they're finally going for it. And I recently watched the first two Rush Hours for the first time. Still have yet to watch Rush Hour 3. And those first two Rush Hours are both great. They are. They're just good. Nice. <laughs> the the second one has a lot more critical uh, criticisms, I guess. A lot more criticisms than the first one. But I think they're both good. I mean, it's just Jackie Chan doing what he does best. Just entertaining, purely. He's incredible. He's just so amazing. I mean, I watched Police Story again and Police Story 2. Amazing. Just the things he can do with his body. Incredible. I mean, he's holding onto buses with an umbrella. He's jumping down poles that are three, four stories tall. He's 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 flinging himself through, like, in Rush Hour 2, 2? No, Rush Hour 1. In Rush Hour 1, he, like, there's, like, you know the little teller windows? Like if you're mm -hmm. at like a casino and there's like the cages and there's like a little slot for the teller thing. Right. He jumps up and throws his whole body through the teller slit in like one swoosh. It's incredible. Yeah. He's and then you watch like the accurate. bloopers where he like where he like tries to do it and it takes him like a dozen tries to get through that little slot because it's, it's nearly impossible. It's so tiny. And he's like hurling himself at it full speed. And so they, they show the bloopers and he's like hurting himself trying to do it. It's just amazing. It's amazing his determination. Just incredible. How old is this man now? Oh, he's got to be sixty something, right? Yeah. Fifty something. Interesting. Interesting to see how you know physically involved he'll be in this new rush hour. I bet you he'll be better than ever. I mean, he's kept himself in great physical shape. I bet he can still do it. Not to he the same extent, but right to more of an extent than you would imagine. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Tom I mean, Cruise. Yeah, I mean, I believe him. I'm sure he can do it. Him and Tom Cruise are probably close to the same age. I mean, Tom Cruise is still running a lot and flying planes and jumping a motorcycle into a canyon. It's Not so over weird. a canyon, into a canyon. Mm-hmm. God, and I Jackie, can't I, Jackie I can't Chan said he has to one-up him. He yeah. can't be outdone by Tom Cruise. He can't be outdone by Tom Cruise, I guarantee. 
he'll one up him. I, I, I'm sure of it. Tom Cruise is great. He's one of the best action stars ever. But you can't beat Jackie Chan, man. You just can't. Mm-hmm. Can't. And can't beat Jackie. In our last piece of news: Taylor Swift. She's going to be directing her own feature film for Searchlight Pictures. Mm-hmm. It is going to be an original script written by her. And of course, this would not necessarily be her first time directing, since apparently she did that music video all too well. So what are your thoughts on Taylor Swift I'm intrigued. the film space? I'm intrigued. I'll give it a shot. I don't think it'll be a movie that's meant to be enjoyed by a person like myself, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's being made for a guy like me, but I'll watch it. I'm I'm willing I'm willing to give it a shot. I like Taylor Swift. I think it'll be good. We'll see. I'm I'm hopefully optimistic. Mm-hmm. It is very interesting that yeah. she's deciding to do this. I don't know of any other, you know, sort of comparison of a singer who's only done like a few minor acting roles, but then now all of a sudden is jumping into the director's chair. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think she can do it. I mean, that music video she did, I mean, it was just, it was made just all too well. Let me tell you. <laughs> How dare you? Ridiculous. Um, yeah, I never ended up watching that. Do you That's think good. her her directorial skills are are you confident in them that she can? Bring I don't it know if confidence is the right feature. word because you know a short film is a lot different than a feature film. There's so Absolutely. much more work you have to do into balancing things on a feature film to get it just right. And she does have the benefit of the music video being a video being played to music that she had written and her being a very talented singer songwriter backing that up, you know? So the music is carrying a lot of the emotionality of that short film, but it's, it is genuinely it's made pretty well. And I think her creative choices were correct. It, I, I will just say that, yeah, it's, it's very heavily depended upon that song that she wrote. That is a very good song because she's a very, very talented singer songwriter. So she had that benefit going into directing this music video. I don't know if the movie's going to be scored to music that she's written or if it's going to be a musical or anything, but if it's just like a like a straight drama, comedy, whatever film with no music in it, it might be a little harder for her to pull it off, but I'm still, you know, I'm willing to give it a shot. I'm sure why not? I mean, there's just really no benchmark for this. There's well, there not a lot of times one. there's Sia <laughs> in her film. So she can't do worse than that, right? No, she no way. Just... Taylor Swift would never do worse than that. I guarantee you it'll be better than that shit. I mean, so my there God. you go. <laughs> All she has to do is just do better than... Why did you have to bring up Sia, man? <laughs> what was damn. the film called? It was just called... Happy, wasn't it? Was, was no, it just called was Happy? It? No. I don't think so. Uh, now I'm going whatever to that one was. I'll fact check it. Yeah, it's not, um, not a high bar, so she should be able to clear yeah. that. Um, and then I can't wait for us to report on... Oscar-winning director Taylor Swift in a few years. Music. It's called Music. Music, yeah. Which is a bad title for the movie. True. And I know the girl's name is Music, but, I mean, see it. Come on. It's a bad name for a child. All right. We'll move on to the box office breakdown for December 2nd to the 4th. Wakanda Forever spending its fourth week at the top. 17.5 million. Is that the fourth week? I don't know. It's been there for quite some time now. And yeah. it's closing in on 400 million. Let's go. So, yeah, doing quite well. It is the second film this year to cross four, or no, third. Because, yeah, Top Gun Maverick's way up there in 700 million. 
Oh, yeah. Doctor Strange was able to cross 400 million. Now Wakanda forever has joined it. Oh, yeah. In second place was David Harbour's Violent Night. It made 13.4 million. Strange World with 5 million, bringing its domestic total to 25 million. Once again, a huge, monstrous bomb for Disney. Yeah. Damn. The Menu, 3.4 million. That makes its domestic total at 24 million. Just 1 million below Strange World, where their budgets are quite literally not equivalent. Quite, quite mm -hmm. dramatically not equivalent. So uh, exactly. good for the menu. Mm -hmm. Devotion with 2.7 million. I Heard the Bells with 2 million. Black Adam, 1.5 million. The Fablemans, 1.2 million. Bones and All, 1.1 million. And Ticket to Paradise, the George Clooney, Julia Roberts rom-com that we reviewed earlier in the year. 845,000 coming in 10th. Indeed. For... You want to hear something neat? Sure, go ahead. You know the scenes in the menu where they're walking along the beach with all those, the dead wood on the beach and stuff? Yes. I've been there. I went with Alexa. What? It's called Jekyll Island in Georgia. And I recognized it when I was watching the movie, but I didn't put it together until I read about it somewhere in some kind of article where they said that they had filmed locations on Jekyll Island. And I went, oh, Alexa and I took a, a day trip there uh, last year at some point. We drove up, had a picnic, and then drove back down. Wow. Did you eat at any restaurants there? Yeah. We ate at a, there was like a dockside restaurant on the island. That was like, uh, you go in and then, uh, well, spoiler alert for the restaurant, but the chefs kill themselves and uh, then they kill you. Beautiful. Wow. Sounds like yeah. a great five-star experience. Uh, yeah. Michelin, yeah. Five mission stars. 10 out of 10. Would recommend. All right. So for the predictions, December 9th to the 11th, we have Empire of Light and then The Whale coming out in limited release. Mm -hmm. Both of these are probably not going to get over 3 million. Yeah. Very, very low. Yeah, which is but, a shame. But if I can find The Whale somewhere near me, I really want to watch it. Me too. Yeah. It's one to look out for. For sure. Okay, let us now talk about Before Sunrise. So, as I said at the top, we're doing this in honor of what would be the, you know, the time where the next film in the, I guess it would be the quartet if a new mm. film were coming out. But this little yeah. franchise of very small scale romance focused films. Yeah. Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before Midnight each coming out nine years after the previous one. And 2022 was supposed to be the year that the next one would come out, but pandemic reasons, I'm sure, and then also, I guess, the trio. Were they going Peter, to make a fourth one? Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, they've talked about it, but they said that they didn't feel like there was any extremely compelling story that yeah. would you know, pull them into making exactly. another one. It's too so, late now. So yeah. We'll see if there ever is a time where they're like, yeah, let's make a fourth film, but it won't follow the... They wait nine, 18 nine. years. <laughs> That'd be the next step. And they're just super old. That'd be great, though. I think they should go... I would it. enjoy it. I would actually like that. They're like super old, and then whatever, I don't know what happens in Before Mid. I've only seen the first one. Did but you just, just see it for this thing, or had you uh, seen I've seen before? I've seen Before Sunrise before Sunrise, and... <laughs> And I just watched it again the second time for this episode just now. Nice. All yeah, right. I had to watch so, it today instead of yesterday. And then you have seen Before Sunset or nope. not even? Never ever? seen Before Sunset, never seen Before Midnight. 
And wow. I'm going to wait. And my first times will be for the episodes when we, whenever we exactly. get around to recording those nine years from now. <laughs> yeah. So we also said it'd be fun to carry on with that little, the gimmick, the spaces in between the movies. Yeah. Obviously, we won't be able to do the nine years, but we'll do nine months between. It'd be really badass if we could. But also, just <laughs> on such a smaller scale <laughs> on this podcast where it's just the two of us and not a lot of listeners. And we just wait nine years. I think it's so fun. But yeah. 18 years from now, we're not even doing the show anymore and we come back. We would have to. We'd have to continue. I mean, I absolutely would. So good. (laughs) But yeah, so we'll we're starting off our our series on before on the before trilogy with Before Sunrise. The film came out in 1995. As I mentioned before, Richard Linklater starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy as the two main characters. And they were extremely involved in creating those characters. And as the new films came out and figuring out how those characters would evolve, how they would act, all that sort of stuff, which seems like a great collaborative relationship between director and actor. Um, And then, of course, it's a very romance-centric film. I mean, it's just these two characters. If you haven't seen it, go see it and then join us on this journey. But I feel like most people know the basic gist of it being that two people, they meet randomly and then they Mm -hmm. decide to spend the day together before they have to part ways at a certain time. In this film, it is the sunrise. Early in the morning is when they'll need to part ways. But yeah, that's the basic gist of the film. This is my first time seeing it your second time seeing it and then yeah i haven't seen any of the other films you hadn't seen it before no exciting very exciting exactly yeah so let's get really into it let's get let's get personal (laughs) let's get personal let's yeah let's let's break down some of these barriers ryan (laughs) are we gonna have are these was the first time you ever had sexual feelings about a person (laughs) (laughs) we just we list off we have all the conversations they have in the movie, but between us right between now. Us, yeah. And then by the end yeah. of it, we're in love. <laughs> or are we? Mm, exactly. Oh, yeah. We'll get to that. It's only physical. <laughs> but, yeah, so the film, an indie darling, cult yeah. classic. Of course. Very well beloved. Mm-hmm. It has a very naturalistic approach, of course. Um it's trying to make you feel like these are two real people that would have this real encounter and spend this day together and talk about the things and do the things Mm -hmm. that you would if you know this situation happened to you in real life let's talk about that though getting personal yeah have you had a scenario like this where you just like have like one train with some random person (laughs) yeah got off a train no there was um there was one night I went to a party. It was one of Alexa's friends' birthday parties, and I didn't know anybody at the party. And there were maybe a few guys like chilling on the back patio, and like Alexa's friend's boyfriend was out there. And so I was like, I'm going to go chill with the guys, you know? So I go back there and I'm talking to them. And uh, we just spend the whole night just chatting about our lives. Like, I, like, these are guys who have known each other for a while. Like, they like play video games together. There's one guy who lives in California 
who flew out to visit them and happened to be there at the time of the party. So he came and visited them, but he had never met them before. He just played video games with them. Mm -hmm. It was like the first time they had ever met in person. And they just like opened up about a bunch of stuff in their personal life about like their dynamic and their friend group. I remember there was one guy who was talking about uh, like how he felt about a certain way that one of the friends who was also there like treated him and like, like, cause like, cause like one of them was more well off financially than the other one. And he was talking about how like, you know, you offer to buy things for me sometimes and sometimes they don't like, you know, feeling that way of like, you have to buy me something in order for me to enjoy it. Sometimes I like right. to choose whether or not I get it or not. And then the other guy was giving his perspective of like, Oh, I just, I like to keep you involved. And I, if money's the problem, then I will make sure money's not the problem. And then, and then he was like, you know, money isn't the problem. It's our dynamic, things like that. There was another guy, the guy from California was talking about uh, stuff with his like relationship with his girlfriend and stuff like that. And I was just there ping ponging with him, just listening, talking back, giving my opinion, all drinking the whole time, just getting very, very drunk. <laughs> and then uh, other than Alexa's friend's boyfriend, I never saw any of them ever again. That was, that was... 2021 new around new years of 2021 so almost two years ago God. that was the party i got COVID at <laughs> wow. so one great. of them's the son of a bitch <laughs> wow they gave you that great experience and then also they gave you COVID. well yeah, it was one of the most exciting <laughs> nights of my life because i was like i don't know these people really and i don't even know if i'll ever see them again and i honestly all of them except for the one guy i really have not seen them ever again and it was just interesting how personal the conversations got and how willing I was to be. I just, I didn't know there were people like that out there outside of like my own friend group who would get so open so quickly, which I, you know, I guess alcohol does that to a person, but it was just, it got so in depth and so personal and so open so quickly. And I was so welcome inside of that conversation. It was great. That's the nice. closest thing I have to this kind of experience. What about you? Anything similar? I don't know about any one night sort of thing, mm -hmm. but in terms of a scenario where it's a limited amount of time where you're together mm -hmm. and you still sort of have that same feeling of like, oh, this could, we could never see these people again. Yeah. This could just be a one time thing, but not necessarily like a one night thing, but the dynamic only is around for a limited time. Mm -hmm. I've had that a couple of times on. Oh, yeah. Um, on vacations, which is funny because I am watching oh, White yeah. Lotus right now, as you know. And so seeing oh, man. that sort of thing of like these vacation relationships that sprout mm -hmm. up, um, so that that has happened. And then also on mission trips that have oh, been yeah. on, or yeah, before that, like little uh, camp excursions to mm -hmm. church camp, camp um, for sure. But there are times, yeah, where yeah, it's a very limited amount of time. You're with these people like constantly, almost the entire day, because there's just nothing else really to do besides whatever. Like work you're doing then when you hang yeah. out or hang out together all the time and so yeah those conversations mm -hmm. frequently come up and it's a nice thing because then at least you do get um a sort of rapport where you go to bed you wake up the next day you see them at breakfast you hang out the day yeah. it's late at night and then people are opening up and then you do the same thing the next day but then there is still that time where okay we leave and we go back to our lives yeah and you live in this state and i live in this state and yeah we'll we have each other's numbers or we exchange Snapchat or whatever it was. Yeah. And we'll talk for a little bit, but then it kind of know, things drift apart. Exactly. Yeah. Which is very fascinating that they bring this up in the film 
they talk about one the otherworldliness of the experience that they're having of them being like oh this yeah. is a one night thing and they're like, like in a dream yeah so magical yeah and they know that's why it can be so powerful because when you when you don't know the yeah. person and you know you're only going to see them for a little bit you can be more open and vulnerable that's exactly what i was them. about to say yeah it's so mm-hmm. interesting what an interesting kind of dynamic it is yeah and it's like exploring that because there are times where like you have your friends and they know so much about you and you can have those periods of time where you open up with them. But then there's also that, like, as you were talking about in your conversation there mm-hmm. of them having that sort of debate and them talking about, well, the problem isn't the money, it's our dynamic and that yeah. sort of thing. And that can always be. They like had this, it wasn't like a heated argument, but it was like a, uh, just like a real discussion they were having real heart to heart where one of them was upset about what was going on in their relationship and they, they hashed it out in front of me. And I was like, mm-hmm. It didn't quite get resolved, but I was like a part of it and I was like talking to them each about it, you know, and it right. was interesting because I just didn't know them I have, and I've never seen either of them since. Right. But yeah, that part about them hashing it out is great, but there were so many prior conversations or times that they have seen each other before that instance where those same sort of feelings were there, but they weren't being hashed out because, I mean, sometimes you just hang out, you're doing it for fun, you're not necessarily trying to get into those deep conversations but then those feelings are still there bubbling beneath the surface they can cause a bit of that rift until there is hopefully a time where you do have a heart-to-heart and you can try to resolve things or at least let your you know your feelings be known and then they can mm-hmm. respond with their feelings um, and then you find a way to move forward but yeah. with it when it's people that you know this is you know i like this approaching this episode we're going to talk more about i think just that's things what I'm in saying. life in general that's instead I, of the movie itself but when i when like, i saw the script and i saw that you hadn't actually written that much i was like you know what let's let's put the script aside let's get deep here just well, like they was, do in the movie that was what i was thinking about doing for because i mean what i do have in the script is most resonant most resonant places and conversations yeah and yeah i was gonna bring up us like having some of those conversations that they have and talking about mm-hmm. how they apply to our lives and what we have there but honestly yeah i mean the movie itself it's just like watching a night of the two people getting together and having real conversations that you've probably had with people or that mm-hmm. you tend to think about a lot. And they execute that very well. The performances are great. Yeah. The conversations are interesting. There's not too much to add to that or analyze about yeah. it. Um, it's just it's a very just two well people done. talking. Yeah. I would say the only analysis I could give is that there is something brilliant about Ethan Hawke's performance. Like, don't get me wrong. Julie Delpy is amazing as well. Like, she's playing the character with such sincerity. That's amazing. But Ethan Hawke is making this character who, on paper, is kind of obnoxious and making him very likable, which is a hat trick. And I will say hats off to Ethan Hawke for that very, very impressive display of acting to make such uh, by the books kind of annoying, cynic, cynical character likable. And it's it's also a, a testament to their dynamic and their uh, chemistry that they could be such polarizing and opposite characters and have such difference of opinions and then still connect so strongly mm-hmm. and still have that beautiful relationship that they have. And I think that has to do with the story itself about the time frame of it all and also just their performances are just great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, to get back to what I was saying there about part of why that experience of opening up to 
complete strangers mm-hmm. and being more okay with that sometimes than you are with people that you know. Mm-hmm. People that you have in your life, they already have all these expectations and assumptions about who you mm-hmm. are and how you act. And anytime you do open up, that always gets, you know, filtered into what their yeah. vision of you is and how they think about you. And, you know, it sort of enters that, um, yeah, just the way that they process everything yeah. about you in your life. And so with certain things, you want to, I know, keep them close to your chest. If you're not ready to share them, or you're not ready for other people to, you know, comment on them or just at least be aware of those things going on in your life. Mm-hmm. And then so you can open those up to strangers and talk about those problems or issues you're having in your life a little bit easier because, you know, okay, I'm never going to have to essentially like see the consequences of this person knowing this thing or um, just having them like have this new understanding of who I am since they don't have any understanding of who I am. So you can, in a way, be a chameleon as well with you when you're with complete mm-hmm. strangers. You don't have to, you know, keep in mind, oh, this person may think this about me or, oh, they may remember this way later down the line and bring it up or something like that. You can just do yeah. what you want to do in that scenario. Like and then that's no that. bias. There's exactly. no personal history that's informing what they think of what you're saying. And mm-hmm. that is, you know, something that you might worry about a lot when you're bringing something up to someone that you're super close with. And of course there will be an amount of listening that they're going to provide. Cause if they are a close friend and a good close friend, they're still going to be there, but there's still that idea that like, whatever I'm bringing it up, they do have like a history with that topic in some way or another in knowing me with that topic. And they will, the thing I always worry about is like, what if I try to bring something up and they just try to solve it instead of listening? And I feel like that's more likely to happen with someone that you're very close with than with perhaps a stranger. I feel like maybe it's not that a stranger listens more, but that they're least they're less likely to try and solve whatever issue you're having. And so that feels more like they're listening in a way. You know what right. I'm saying? I feel like there are times where I'll go to someone that I'm super close with and I'll try to talk about something that's like bothering me, whether it's something that involves them or is just not involves them. Maybe I'm venting and it'll be like sort of like they're just trying to solve the problem or try to come at it with a different perspective. And I'm, I'm guilty of doing this as well with people that I'm very close with. Right. So I understand the, the immediate thought process of like, oh, this is someone I'm close with. Oh, I know what they would like. To the outcome to be because I know them so well oh I'll try and help them get to that outcome and sometimes it's just better to sit and just listen to what they have to say and let them get to the outcome themselves because they know themselves better than anyone or they're supposed to at least right exactly do you because I feel like you're pretty good about this where you're able to say up front what sort of feedback you want and whether you do want feedback like if you wanted to open up about something and you could say i just want you to listen i don't necessarily want ideas of how to go about this or how to fix it i'm just yeah i I feel like talking about a problem and you know my frustrations with a problem i feel like i could be better at openly communicating that but i think i am more aware of it than maybe most people would be because i know what i want 
out of an interaction. And I don't, I don't, I don't think I specifically say, you know, Hey, just listen to me when I say this or, Hey, I need your help with something. It's more subtle cues of like, man, this thing was really bothering me today. You want to hear this crazy story? And it's kind of me saying, you know, I'm going to tell you a story here. And it's not necessarily something that needs a solution. This is just something that happened in my day. Here's how crazy this is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's either it's either it's a story that I want you to hear or it's a problem that I want you to solve. And that's kind of how I approach communicating that to people, which is not direct quite, but more like, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, there, there's two kinds of cultures. This is going back to communications class. There's two kinds of cultures. There's the ones that need everything up front and there's the other that can survive on context clues. Do you remember what the term was? No, I don't know exactly. What was it? Anyway, this is more like a context clues based response to trying to get people to, to listen or to solve my problem is I will say, hey, you want to hear this crazy story or hey, I have this really bad problem. And when I, I feel like when I say I have a problem, the immediate response from the person I'm talking to is, oh, they need a solution, unless it's a stranger, maybe. But I feel like the people that I'm close with know that if I say I have a problem, I, they probably know I'm looking for a solution. Whereas right. if I say I have this story I want to talk about, a story automatically implies that you're the audience, you're the listener. And I feel like when I approach talking to someone and I say, hey, I, here's this crazy story, they're more likely to just listen and just be like, well, that is crazy or be entertained by the story I'm trying to tell. Because the one thing, one of the things that bugs me a lot, going back to that, that uh, the conversation they have on the bus about what bugs them, what bugs me a lot is uh, when I try to tell a story and in the story I face hardships, which any good story has, and the person that I'm telling the story to tries to solve the problems that have already happened, that I've already found solutions to. And I've encountered this a lot from like, various people not much recently which is good but in my past i have encountered this a lot and it's it's frustrating me because i'm like trying to get this story off my chest that i think is a good story that i think i am telling in a fun way and an exciting way and it's just this wild thing that happened to me and they're like oh but did you do this and i'm like hang on this i'm in the middle of the story just hold on hold on to your hats because I'm going to finish the story and then you can ask questions, you know? Interesting. So, yeah, I think the way that you distinguish them there of like, oh, this is a story I want to tell you, or oh, this is a problem I have. When you say those words, I, this is a problem that I have, you are looking for solutions with that particular thing? I would say so, because I would never say I have a problem. Listen to me talk about this problem. I'm not. I don't think I'm the kind of person to go to people about my problems unless I'm very explicit about the fact that I'm going to you about my problem. I don't feel like I'm the person who's going to weave in context clues of like, oh, this sucks about this and this, and then hope that you come up with a solution. I most of the time try to solve my own problems. And if there is something that I need an outside opinion on, I'll say, hey, I have this problem. Can you help me with it? I try to be very direct with that kind of communication because I don't want people to think they have to solve my problems all the time. And I don't want people to think that to to worry like, Oh, am I bringing up something because I want a solution, but I'm not giving, giving him the answer. I don't want people to think that I'm fishing for 
help with a problem. I want them to know I do need help or I don't need help. Like I got it or I don't got it, you know? Right. Gotcha. So like when I'm benching with Carlos and I don't got it, I say, I don't got it. And he knows it. He knows what that means, you know? Right. Well, and he, and he good. picks up the bar sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes he's distracted. You got to do it, Dylan. Sometimes he's distracted and he goes, oh, and he has to, he has to get into it. I thought he was going to, you know, became your personal trainer for a moment. He's like, you got to push, Dylan. You just got to push. You can do it. Nah, man. When it comes to benching, if you don't got it, you don't got it. I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, he'll say push, push, push. But once the bar starts going back down, then you need help. Yeah. And then I, I would agree with what you were saying. Not that it's a thing to agree to, but I mean, I sympathize with what you're saying of not coming to people with problems unless you are legitimately like seeking their help in mm-hmm. finding a solution, which honestly may not be the most healthy thing because it does lead to, you know, keeping a lot of things in, at least just for me. But I understand yeah, as you know, I'm a very guarded person and reserved person. And part of that of is me not bringing up many of my problems to mm-hmm. people. Because one, I mean, I don't um, want to feel like a burden. The classic I'm the thing. exact same way, of course. Um, but yeah, also it feels it, and this is not to bring up other people's views and perspectives into as well. But I mean, I've heard people voice the opinion of like when you're bringing up problems and you're mm-hmm. looking for help it's Mm -hmm. very rare that like someone else coming in and giving you that answer is going to change anything at all Mm -hmm. like if you're having some sort of problem and it's not for all problems of course but most problems have like a very clear easy solution that the person with the problem probably already knows they -hmm. just don't want to put in the effort to do it yeah and then so I feel like, okay, if I have a problem and then I go to someone with that, then it's them either feeling like I am being yeah. burdened, just bring problems that are easily solvable to them. Or, yeah, it's just a reflection of me not yeah. being smart or uh, like putting in enough effort or being committed mm-hmm. enough to solve the problem. Yeah. And then, so I'm like, well, I don't want people to have that impression of me. I don't mm-hmm. want to be that way. So, oh, let me just continue going at this problem myself and finding my own way to solve it. Do you think that, do you think that's a hindrance to the problem? Or do you think you would benefit from outside opinions, even if they are obvious? Because I would say in my own opinion, or my own case, there was the situation with my procrastination with writing. Right. And I know the answer. The answer is just write. You're procrastinating. Shut up and just write. Like find mm-hmm. a way to write. Write anything. Just anything possible, write. And I would keep pushing it off and keep thinking about what I want to write because, well, my process is I like to think about it for a long time and then write it. But it's gotten to the point where I've thought about it too much and I just need to write it and I know that. And I would talk to you about how much, oh, man, Ryan, I hate that I haven't written in so long. Man, this sucks. You know, I really, I really, man, I wish I could just get in there and get it done. But God, I just can't find the time. And then you were like, no, just, just write. Find something to write. Find anything to write. 
write anything, do anything, just write mm-hmm. something. It doesn't matter. And I have been writing more and I'm oh. getting closer to finishing the script that I wanted to finish by the end of the year. I don't think I'll get it in time, but I'm definitely a lot closer than I was before. I mean, I'm 20 pages deeper now. You've been writing it? The disco one? No, not the disco one. The, the dinner, the dinner one. one? Dinner oh, party nice. one, yeah. The disco one needs more more time to think because there's different things that I want to do with it and I don't know which one is right. So I need to think about it more. But gotcha. the dinner one is solid. Like it's thought out. It, in the same way that you write out what your plan is for your script, I think it out and it is thought out to death. Like perfect. And the yeah. more I write it, the better it gets. And I'm nice. really loving it. And it is a matter of finding the time, but the answer is just do it. And I think even though the answer was obvious and I already knew the answer, I needed to hear you say it to me to make it more real, which is kind of stupid in a way. But well, yeah, I think part of why I do think, um, you know, part of like solving that particular problem, Mm -hmm. I think what can help is having like accountability partners. And if you at least just for me, that's something that I've noticed. I do have this competitive edge, this competitive spirit. If I know someone else knows like that I'm trying to do something, mm-hmm. it'll make me far more compelled to complete it or yeah. finish it. If you said if to me, it was if just you said me, to me, no one else knew. If you said to me, Dylan, I'm working on a script right now. First person to finish their script buys dinner for the other person. <laughs> I would be done by now. It would be done. It would be written. And then you'd be buying me dinner. <laughs> for sure right or or your competitive spirit would kick in and you would whoop my ass and i would be buying you dinner but i've for sure i agree with you accountability and com- competition for sure is something that drives me a lot not yeah. as much as it used to but still it, it definitely gets me going not as much as you either but it, it is something that does work i don't know why it does something for me but you were very competitive yes the so what you were bringing up there is interesting because i think that problem of I'm not writing, but I want to write, or I'm just like procrastinating from writing. Mm-hmm. It sounds like, so for you, although I don't know, so let me know if this is the case. Cause when someone brings that up, it could mean multiple different things of like why that problem is happening. It could be just a lack of time. Like if someone is working a full-time job and then they have a bunch of other commitments mm-hmm. and they're tired at the end of the day, which is the only time that they have to write. And so they're not able to write, or it could be a fear of, not being good enough and like oh when it's in my mind it's good but once i put it on the page then that's when the like faults and flaws yeah. can all start being much more visible and so i don't want to confront that mm-hmm. and have to do all the work of like repairing that or facing whether or not i'm good enough as a writer like mm-hmm. those sort of things um are different sort of problems that both could result in oh i'm not writing and so it is interesting when someone brings up that problem. There is still, I think, a little bit more of the troubleshooting to figure out, okay, well, where is that problem originating? Yeah. Is it you're procrastinating because you fear, like, you know, you have this self-doubt, imposter mm-hmm. syndrome, things like that, and that's what's preventing you from sitting down and writing? Or is it, oh, just practically there's a lack of time and you haven't figured out how you want to like carve up your days so you can allow time for the writing. Yeah. For you, what did you, was it more of I the think, latter? Of, I like, think it was practical? a practical thing in my mind. I always knew 
I always know that I'm a good writer and I'm confident in my writing and I'm confident in the fact that I can look at it and objectively say when it's bad and objectively say when I think it's good. Mm -hmm. And you know that I've said that I've written things that I will never use. I've written a movie that I'll never use because I think it's bad. I've written a book that I'll never use because I think it's bad. But it is, I mean, I might use parts of it somewhere, but never released because I think they're just, they're bad. And that's fine. And I'm okay with throwing that away because it's the practice I needed to get better. And at some point I stopped practicing. And what sucks is that was about the same time I started getting really good. And I think my writing skill has improved greatly. And the only thing that holds me back in terms of not something that's practical, something in my own head, is that I look at people around me like, you or like Ryan Mayers or like a, a people in the writing club or, or Spencer or somebody. I'm like, they're so in deep with the art that they're working on. And they're so open about it, open about talking about their art that people look at them and see them as artists and see them as writers. Like people will look at you, Ryan, and they'll say he's a writer. And I feel like people don't look at me and think that I think I'm good. And I think I'm a writer. I consider myself a writer. But I don't think other people look at me and think I'm a writer anymore because I don't talk about it as much. And I and more importantly, I don't do it as much. And right. I'm not I don't open up about talking about it as much. You know, I don't tell people about what I'm writing. I like to keep it more or less a little secret until it's all done. Because even I don't know where it's gonna go and I could change my mind at some point. Mm-hmm. And I feel like not being as open about myself writing, even though, you know. I've wanted to be a director, a movie director, since I could think about anything. But I think first and foremost, I'll, I am a writer and I'll be a writer until I die. Whether or not I get lucky enough to make movies as part of that would be a dream come true. But I think I yeah. am currently a writer and will always be a writer. And that is the thing that probably defines me the most artistically is writing. Because I think it's the thing that I'm best at. I think I'm, I would be good at making movies. I don't know. I haven't gone that into it i'm okay at playing some instruments but i think the thing that i'm best at is writing and i don't talk about it much and i don't share it much and i at this point have stopped doing it very much which is did you watch the fablemans yet no okay i think i'm gonna go see it after we finish this episode okay well not to spoil anything i'm gonna skirt by very surface level there's a bit where he gives up filmmaking for a bit like mm-hmm. making home movies and stuff. And that part resonated with me a lot where I am right now because it felt like there was a lot of stuff going on in my life where I put writing, like my art, to the side. And that did affect me a lot. That made me very sad and really affected how I thought of myself. But I still, to this day, think of myself as a writer. And I really want to try and put more effort into that. And so that's like the one thing that was like a mental block was how I think other people see me versus how I think other people see the people around me. Mm -hmm. I think people see you guys and think more of an artist. And I think people see me and think a lot of wonderful things, but I don't think they look at me as a writer, which is something I would like to change one day. But for now, I'm just going to focus on writing. The main thing was definitely the physical constraints, time, uh, energy, things like that. There was a, a problem with, the environment in which I was writing because right. my laptop went to shit. And so I have this desktop, which I love and I use it every day for making the show. But if I'm going to write, I'm stuck in my bedroom. 
And I kind of like to be able to be on the go while I'm writing. I found that out. And so I bought a typewriter and then it turns out typewriters are hard to use (laughs) as cool as they are. And as amazing as I think they are, if I write a page of a script and I decide to change it and I have to rewrite the whole goddamn page, I'm going to blow my brains out. (laughs) I will use it to write letters because I think it's cool. And I'll use it to write notes because I think it's cool. Or maybe even my final draft of a script because I think it's cool. But I can't write like a first draft on a typewriter. Like what a pain in the ass. So then I went and I sold my old laptop. That was a piece of junk. And I used that money to buy a new laptop. And I will say that I have a marked increase in writing since I bought that laptop because I can take it with me everywhere. I take it with me when I go to Alexa's. I take it with me when I walk to the park. I use it all the time now. And so I have been writing more, but I will say for a long time it was, I don't like where I have to write. I don't think I have time to write. I can't budget time to write. And after working so much, I don't have energy to write. And that was like a pit I fell into. Right. And beyond anything, those are definitely just excuses. And that's not to say that the excuses were made up. They're legitimate. I do not have a lot of time. I do not like the environment I was writing in, and I don't have a lot of energy between work. But if writing is something I want to do, and it's something that I'm passionate about, I need to find the time to do it. And you were the one that said, just write, just write anything. And it was kind of like a a wake up, a good wake up. And I've been slowly getting back into it. It's been taking some time, but I'm getting there. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad that our conversations were able to help out with that. So bringing that all the way back around to where this started, I would say that sometimes I have in the past talked about my problems, not in a manner that I wanted a solution, but a solution was brought to me and it did help. Mm -hmm. So I would say that there is benefit to providing solutions to people, even if they don't ask for it. But I think there's also a benefit to listening to what they have to say and just, it's more like not even providing a solution, but feedback, providing feedback on what they have to say, whether it's positive or negative, but not necessarily telling them exactly what to do or what they should do. Mm -hmm. I think I've had problems with this, like in my relationship with Alexa a little bit, where I will bring up a problem or she will bring up a problem and there will be a miscommunication about what we're supposed to do, whether it's listening or... That's why I brought the thing, because I mean, I've heard you say before of like the idea of, okay, well, should I be listening or do you want me to try and figure out a solution which i think is a great like sort of uh framework to have if it's a good question to ask your partner or whoever's talking to you when they first initiate that conversation it might seem a little dry it might seem a little non-natural to say hey do you want me to listen or do you want me to solve the problem but sometimes direct communication is just all you need just put it out there. Hey, do you want me to just listen to you here? Or are you looking for help? You know? Mm-hmm. And I try to do that when I can, but there have been problems, you know, with like, I guess, what's a good way to put it? Like, like talking about uh, something and like, my mind's drawing a blank here. It's like, Like you start talking about a problem 
And when there isn't that direct communication of like, do you want me to solve the problem? Or do you want me to just listen? Sometimes feedback isn't what you get. And it's rather just a direct solution. And I think the problem there is that if it's not the solution I'm looking for, I turn it down. Mm -hmm. And that makes Alexa feel like she's not being heard in the conversation because I'm not doing her solution. So maybe a better way of communicating would be to not provide direct solutions to people's problems unless, of course, asked for. But right. to give that feedback of like, here's what I think about your situation. What do you think you're going to do now that I've given you that feedback? Right. You well, know? I think part of like giving feedback can be suggestions mm -hmm. saying something along the lines of, well, have you considered this? Or sure, yeah. I were in your position, I might try this. Um, but I think at the least, if it is a problem that you're bringing up in like seeking a solution, then, you know, mm -hmm. being given solutions obviously would be helpful. Yeah. Or if you're just bringing up a problem and you're like trying to figure it out, you don't know exactly what to do, and they give you a solution, you're like, well, that's not how I would go about it. That at least still informs you of For how sure. you would try to go about it. Yeah. You have a solution you know you don't want to do. That narrows the options for what you would want mm -hmm. to do. Um, so, yeah, I think, I do think, yeah, just being very clear and direct can be helpful. Because honestly, I mean, yeah, I think there are people are wired in different ways and people yeah. naturally gravitor, gravitate towards doing one or the other. I think both of us tend to think more in that like problem solver mindset. Absolutely. So, yeah, we're less likely to go to someone with problems or talk about issues unless we are like trying really, to yeah, solve really things. stuck. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas other people, they like will vent and talk about all these issues and problems they're having just because the act of talking about them helps mm -hmm. like relieve their stress and helps them just not be so upset about it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, a lot of people work that way. A lot of people work other ways like we do. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is helpful just to make sure that when these two people come into contact, well, what do you want me to do? Listen or try and yeah. solve? I think that can be really helpful. Yeah. As someone who like also thinks of things in a very problem solving way of like, you know, there's an issue right in front, which, you know, it that, that leads into us being good writers and good filmmakers is that problem solving aspect, which I appreciate about us. Do you ever like, because we're, when we're confronted with a problem, we go straight into solving mode. Do you ever like are confronted with somebody else's problem and you have to actively put that in check because you know a solution isn't what they want. Have you ever been in like that kind of a situation? Have you ever tried to put that thought into check? I'm not sure if I can bring Maybe it not something specific, mind. but is that like yeah. something you have tried in the past in general? I feel like, yeah. I mean, part of, yeah, like the job I do and work we do sometimes is just like acting as a bounce board so that people can sure. like you know, throw things to you and then it's just through them talking about it, they're able to get a lot more out of it than mm -hmm. if you were the one responding or trying to solve it a lot. Um, so yeah, there's definitely been times where that has happened. Um, are you, is there like a specific experience for you where you had to rein in the instinct to problem solve? No, no, I, I nothing specific. I just, in my later years now, having been in a relationship for four years and having gotten a lot closer to a lot of my close friends and meeting a lot of new people and getting older, 
Mm-hmm. I find myself doing that a lot unconsciously and then consciously trying to put that in check to a, an extent to where I am trying to be that bounce board helping somebody without telling them what I think they should do because they deserve someone that can listen to them and provide answers if they want it, but also not be the rigid force that's telling them exactly what to do. And I want to be that kind of friend for people where they could come to me and with a problem and I could really help them out in a sincere and genuine way without just giving them the answer that I think that I think would work unless that's what they want. But I try to, I guess, limit that part of me. And I don't know if that is as beneficial to me when I'm writing. You know, I guess I could put it in check a little bit. I feel like when I'm writing nowadays, there's a little bit less problem solving going on and more me just trying to go with the flow and just trying to write as it comes to me. And it's and then I will come to problems that I've written in. And now it's like, oh, I've created a continuity issue or I've created a, a, a problem like, oh, this actually isn't something this character would say. I just wrote this in because that's how I was feeling when I was writing it. Right. And I have to go back and fix it. And then I'll notice that when I'm reworking, because one of the things I've started doing now that I'm back in writing and now that I've gotten a little older, I never did this before, but as I'm every time I go back to work on the script I'm working on, I will go back and reread what I've written already and fix things as I go. Now, when you say that, do you mean the entire thing? Uh, sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I will be like, all right, let's reread it. So I'm refreshed. And no, I know exactly because it is it is a script where everything is taking place in one night. So it's mm-hmm. very in the moment. So I do like to be refreshed with what's going on. Sometimes I'll just read the last few pages, the last few scenes to remember where I'm at. It's also bouncing back and forth between different scenes. And so I like to know which scenes I've just written so I don't bounce back to something I just did. And right. I give time to breathe in the scenes. So I, if I don't reread the whole thing, which is getting harder now that it's getting longer, I will reread just the last few scenes to kind of catch up. But as I'm doing that, I will also edit it and change things and add more. I find that when I add more, it gets better which isn't necessarily a good thing and I'm worried about it being too long, but I think as long as I keep it tight, it'll work. And as long as what I'm adding is actually good and helps it, it isn't too much. I think it's the right choice, but I have found myself changing a lot of things. I add little notes, you know, I I go in and I add little parentheticals and little additions that change it very subtly, but change a lot for me as I'm reading it. So that it's no longer one thing and now something else. Even though the line that the character might be saying is the exact same, I add a little parenthetical that changed a little bit to me. Or I added three little dots to give a pause to something which might change the intention. And it's those little things that I add as I'm editing that kind of unfold what I'm writing in an interesting way. And I kind of like doing that. Just going back every once in a while, rereading the whole thing, and just adding these little additions that change it a little bit. Because there's a character that I was writing, and uh, you watch Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, right? Yep. He's a lot like the uh, main male character. What's that actor's name? Richard Burton. It's like the Richard Burton character in that movie. And I didn't like that because I wanted it to be something else. I just didn't know what. And then I realized that the Richard Burton character is very uh, pretentious and very... 
uh, know-it-all and very obnoxious. And I wanted this character to be obnoxious in a similar way, but I wanted him to be more childish. I wanted him to be very, very mm-hmm. childish. So I kept, I was thinking about changing the lines because they were very pretentious in the way that they were written. But I was like, you know, there's just still something that a child might say. They just wouldn't say it in the exact same manner as I've written it. And so I added little parentheticals where I'd say like he might furrow his brow because he's grumpy or he might do this and that because he's agitated or he's like poking fun like a child would and right. just made the character much more childish and made it a lot different than I had written it up until that point which helped a lot I think because it was a whole new way of seeing it and I wasn't just copying what I had seen before which is also something I worry about you know mm-hmm. getting inspiration is one thing but doing a direct copy is something I try to avoid as much as I can having written right. a script in high school that was just ripped out of a Quentin Tarantino script right for sure um well it's great that you're i mean if you've got your writing style and routine down in the way that you like it and it's beneficial for you i mean that's awesome mm-hmm. that you're able to arrive on that and once you finish it and you hit the stage where you want to start looking for some feedback you know i got you my boy i know you do uh, you'll then... be the first person to send it to you but i don't want to send it to you until i can also add an attachment to that email with the notes from your script. So I'm doing both at the same time because I owe you that much to return the favor. It is just hard to find time to do both. And I'm I'm working through it very slowly, but I'm getting there. But let me ask you this. So you mentioned how you'll reread your script so you can keep everything straight about what's going on in the night and what scenes you've just done. Yeah. How are you going to be able to give feedback on the later part of my script if you haven't read the beginning of it recently? I had to reread the like beginning when I <laughs> yeah, when I went saying. to start doing notes again. I had to reread. I just like skimmed through the beginning to remember where I was and what was going on. And I went, oh, okay. And now that I've read it twice, I can remember at the very least the the plot structure to where how we got there, so that I know kind of the crumbs that you laid in, and so I know what I'm looking for as I'm reading through. Yeah. So I, I remember it now, but when I first went to go rereading it, I was like fuck, I don't remember anything that's going on. I don't remember most of these characters. And I had to reread from the beginning. But that was easier because I wasn't making notes. I was just going straight through it. Right. Because gotcha. I like already had the notes. And then I then I could look at the notes too and be like, oh, okay. And then I changed some of the notes that I had written down because I was like, I changed my perspective a little bit or maybe I thought about it a bit more since reading and I would add this or add that. Gotcha. Cool. All right. So we sort of, we shifted from talking about just life and relationships in general to more of the creative stuff it's mm-hmm. pretty interesting let's switch it back to before sunrise mm-hmm. and some of the things that were going on in there so what were some of the conversations that they were having in that film some of the ideas being brought up that resonated most for you or that you connected with i like uh, the strong personal back and way. forth i like the back and forth between really deep conversations that maybe anybody would have like very, very general conversations about uh, seeing each other again, about love and all the things like Mm -hmm. that. And then the really specific conversation that they have, like when they're on the train and Ethan Hawke talks about how he wants to do a cable access show where you're just watching a normal person go about their normal day nonstop for 24 hours a day or the bit where he's talking about reincarnation on the train, which is my favorite scene. Just the one shot of them on that train for like 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. When they when he's talking about if there's if everybody's reincarnated and there's seven billion people now and only 
50,000 people, you know, so long ago, are we just splintered souls of that version? Like, I like the back and forth between those very general conversations, the very specific ones that they have. Because it's, it's very, it feels very naturalistic. Because you might start in a very specific spot in a conversation and work your way outward to a more general conversation. Or you might start very general. Like you and I did. We started talking very generally about uh, just uh, relationships and dynamics we have with people that we have met, strangers or friends. And we, mm -hmm. we got more and more specific until we were talking about us as writers and our creative processes and things like that. And so it's... It's interesting to see how Richard Linklater has written the film and how they perform it to make it so naturalistic. I think that's exciting. Mm -hmm. Very true. Yeah, I thought some of the conversations that were most interesting to me for whatever reason, I love the the one in the alley in Vienna mm -hmm. when they just sit down at that place and then they are talking generally about love. Mm -hmm. And she mentions that you know, like she knows it's, Corny, and then also because she wants to be like such a strong feminist, um, she doesn't want to always bring up the fact that she does really love the idea of being in love and yeah. loving someone, being loved by someone. And then he has his conversation about um, like being torn between wanting to do something really special in life and leaving behind a legacy, and then you know having a family. And just living out basically a simple, casual, normal life that yeah. most everyone else does on the planet. Um, and he's sort of torn between those two things. Mm -hmm. And then she brings up that one thing about, oh, if there's a God, I don't think it's in any of us. It's in the space in between and people trying to have a connection and share things about each other. Mm -hmm. I thought all of that was amazing. Yeah, exemplary, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that stuff was great. I loved the scene of them fake calling their friends oh yeah like a way an excuse for both of them to talk about like their feelings for each other and how it's they like that it's like that emotional barrier they put up to make themselves more vulnerable and i think that's just so intelligent and so well written it is yeah it's so amazing um i think yeah all their all their talks as they were walking around vienna was great i liked mm -hmm. how they and they brought it up too of like the the conversation they're having that anyone can have and everyone has been having for the longest time mm -hmm. about like the dynamics just between women and men. Um, like I thought that was really great. Mm -hmm. And then them in the the bar when they're playing pinball and they're talking about their exes and the, you know, the experiences that they've had with that. I think that's great because of course that's always an inevitable conversation that comes up. Um, and it's always interesting to see what, you know, the other person has gone through, how, that's like informing the ways they think about things now. Uh, and I thought both of their their contributions to it was interesting. I mean, her mm -hmm. talking about going to therapy and saying she was going to kill the guy is really funny. Yeah. And then the therapist being like all scared. Uh, and then him talking about how that friend that he had mentioned way back on the train was actually his girlfriend that he was coming to visit. And then he got broken up with and mm -hmm. has now just been meandering through the rest of Europe. Yeah. Like all that I think was really well done in terms of like tying things together mm -hmm. that we had sprinkled in earlier in the film. So yeah, all those things were quite interesting conversations. Yeah. In terms of the, we've talked a lot about, you know, the magic of having that limited encounter with a stranger and how it can allow you to be very vulnerable 
And so they mm. do have that and they have this very strong connection, spending all that time together. But then they decide that they want to continue it. They don't want this connection to just be a one-time thing. They want to later down the line meet up. They don't want to talk on the phone, call each other, text each other, anything like that. They just want to meet again in person six months from now at the same train station where she's having to get on and leave. And I thought it was interesting how we see both of them parted and we don't see what happened six mm. months later. Yeah. A different about film, that one night. Yeah, a yeah. different film I think would have done that just to give closure to For sure. the audience. But I think it's great that we leave it in the same sort of uncertainty that they have at the very, like, that same day, once they've had that connection, it was amazing. And then they discard the agreement they had to not meet again. And they decide they do want to meet again. And they set a date for it. Mm -hmm. Neither of them actually know if they're going to happen. Nobody knows what will happen in the next six months, which yeah. might influence whether or not they can go to the thing, if they mm -hmm. want to go to that same train station. Um, so I thought it was, it was great that they just left it on that open-ended note. We got to see them have this connection, but we don't see, at least for that film, we don't see what will come of it. But of course, in the sequels, we do know that they cross paths again. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so I thought it was great that they ended on that. Just as some final questions to wrap things up. Yeah. Do you think they were in love? Um, as a person who has been in love in his life, and is currently in love. No, I don't I don't think what they had was love, but I think it's the closest you could get before getting to love, you know? I think they delved so in depth into their personal lives and they had such a connection, it was so powerful that they got as close as they could to real love without actually touching it. I think that's what makes it so beautiful is that they just graze that sort of deep relationship as close as they can without making that connection last longer. So they, they really live in that, not quite the honeymoon phase, but the, the discovery phase that whole mm -hmm. night is just one big discovery of each other and themselves. And so they really just skirt just right alongside it without quite dipping into it. And I think that's where the magic lies is that if it had ended with six months later, they reunite and they collide and they're together and they're in love, you know, it would kind of nullify everything that had come previous. That night wouldn't be special anymore because now they have a whole life of nights. But that night was a one-time thing. It was a one-time encounter with a person that you aren't quite in love with, but you got really damn near close to. And that's why it's so beautiful to me, at least. Gotcha. That was really well said. Beautiful. What do you think, Ryan? I think no, that they were not in love. Only because, and as speaking as someone who has not been in love, I just don't think you can really, you know, truly, fully be in love if you've only known them for less than 24 hours. I just mm -hmm. don't think it's possible to build that strong of a connection in that short of an amount of time. Because you really, like, they do get to know a lot about each other. And about their dreams and their passions and their ideas mm -hmm. and their beliefs and they have all those profound conversations and they like get physically intimate they're mm -hmm. obviously emotionally intimate throughout a lot of it they have a nice time together but 
I don't think you can really consider them in love at that point because mm-hmm. they don't know enough about each other. Like you need to be able to see someone in a variety of different moods in a variety of different like settings and environments. Like if you haven't seen somebody stressed mm-hmm. out at all and see like how they handle that. Um, I just don't, don't think you can really like be in love, but everything that you have pointed out about them being right on the boundary of that and they're mm-hmm. you know falling in love clearly but they're not there they're not in love at that point that is a lot of the beauty of the film because yeah you they know, sacrifice the, that falling in love moment the, the future of what they could have for that moment that that one moment of that night and that night would be ruined in itself if they went and met and fell in love at, like in the film as the film is written and in the reality of the film that night would no longer be a precious moment. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's a really, really well thought out ending and I really like it a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Let me ask you think that. Oh, sure. oh, you go, you go first, you go first. Well, I was just going to say, if I like that question just because I think people mm-hmm. do have different sort of ideas of what love is and what that yeah. means. And so the time frame of when you can fall in love, some people I think would consider them being, in mm-hmm. love um whereas yeah, i personally wouldn't and then you seem to not either yeah. but a question in itself of like what is love and can these two people that have that really strong connection mm-hmm. in just one night is that love and uh, yeah i think some people can consider it that way which is fascinating yeah but it's, it's like say? a personal thing like what you define love as mm-hmm. you know and to them that might have been love that might have been a more powerful love than actually what you and I would call falling in love and spending your life together. It depends on the person you are. What I was going to ask is based on our definition of love, which is a more conventional term of what most people in society would call love. Do you think it would be possible to fall in love with a person that you don't actually, that you have not actually dated, like someone who's just a friend? (laughs) Do you think you could fall in love with a friend without dating them? And then date them and realize I would say no. I think if we're talking about, like, I don't know, my perceptions of love, mm-hmm. like being in love with someone, you would ha- it would have to be one person. You'd have to be, like, physically intimate with them. Like, I don't think you can, because there are people that say they can be in love with multiple people. I don't know how that is possible. Uh, and then in terms of loving someone that you've never, like, actually been next to you physically because i thought you were gonna ask about like oh can you be in love with someone that you met online or something like that well it's kind of a similar thing like you you aren't necessarily like dating dating but like you meet them online you have a long internet conversation and they're a real person would you fall in love with them or would you have to be with them in person and be with them physically i think you can have a sufficient amount of emotional connection as you would if you were like in love with someone but i think Mm -hmm. there is elements of physical connection that needs to be there too so yeah you can have like such a strong bond with a friend or someone you met online and it can match or exceed Mm -hmm. the like amount necessary to be in love with someone that you're dating right i think that can be true but i think you do still need that like Mm -hmm. physical component um yeah i think that's essential yeah would you agree with that? Or do you think you can be like, quote unquote, in love? Because that's the thing, because you can love people 
for sure. But I'm, mm. I'm talking in love. I'm meaning that like very powerful romantic yeah. relationship. Something I've and thought they, about. I guess I go back and forth, you know. It is very circumstantial. It very much depends on what's going on with you personally. But I think you're probably ultimately right. You can't be in love with somebody until you know 100% for a fact that you are in love with them 100% of the time. You know, I feel like there has to be a more certainty to it. And there can't be certainty without knowing what certain situations would be like. It's about experience, I guess. Being experienced with them romantically, intimately, uh, socially, mentally, just more experience with a person makes you more and more in love with that person, I would say. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I would not say that you could probably f- fall in love with just a friend. But I think what people tend to do is that they fall in love with the idea of being with that friend. They fall in love with the idea of dating them. They fall in love with the idea of being with them, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very romanticized version of what actual true love is and that there's nothing wrong with it. And that's probably what this movie is kind of dancing with is, you know, even though they are physically together, what they have is not by any means like an actual relationship, like like an actual dating relationship, but they are, you know in love with the idea of being with one another and they leave it at that and they don't push that boundary any further to actually trying to be in love because most of the time that doesn't work out and you can never get back the time of the idea of being in love with someone once you start pursuing them more romantically but if you just have that moment it can last forever so i don't know how they're going to pick this up with before sunset but i'm excited yeah, let's do a little prediction since we haven't seen it and we're not going to yeah. see it for nine months. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see what has changed in our life in that time. Obviously, it won't be as monumental as whatever changes they have in their lives. Yeah. But we'll still be, we'll be different people. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, you'll have your script finished, hopefully. For sure. So maybe do an update on that. That'll be fun. My New Year's resolution will be to write three scripts next year. Wow. That includes okay. the one that I'm writing now. So, like, finish that script, then write two more. That's one of my New Year's resolutions. I'm hoping mm-hmm. to have that one script done by – it's already halfway written. I want the first draft done by the end of January, which I think is attainable. And, yeah, and then I wonder what conversations we'll have in the next episode. That'll mm-hmm. be sprung by whatever goes on in Before Sunset. I'm imagining it'll have something to do with feelings of, like, lost – opportunities or lost mm-hmm. like in narrowing pathways in life since yeah. they'll be much older they'll be like in their 30s at that point um and so who knows they i'm sure one of them like will have been in a marriage or in a very sure. close relationship that almost got to a marriage i feel like we'll talk about that mm-hmm. um in that film and then i think there will be a lot of reflection on because in this film and before sunrise they're both very young they're dreamers. They're talking about like all of these possibilities that they have. Um, whereas before sunset, I think they'll probably talk more about regrets that they've had in life, things that they wish yeah. they have done. And then they'll probably together, you're talking about that. They'll be like, okay, let's, let's commit ourselves to like having that same sort of energy and optimism we had when we were young, when we could 
spend a day falling in love with a random stranger. Let's do that sort of thing again. Yeah. That's what I'm assuming before sunset will try and touch on. I think you're on the money there. I think that was well put. I think it's going to be about what could have been. Whereas mm -hmm. this movie was like, what could be? They're like flirting with that idea of what it would be like to be together. And I feel like before sunset, if I have to guess, obviously I don't think they actually meet up six months after this movie. I think that if I had to guess, if I was writing it, they bump into each other again in the very same manner. And then they spend an entire day just like this one, just talking about their lives up until this point from where they were when they last saw each other and then talking about that past of like what what our lives would be like if we had met six months later if we had stayed together right and that's kind yeah. of an interesting conversation because this movie leaves off with the we're in that moment and we're going to stay in that moment and we're never going to go near it again and then before sunset nullifies that idea and i think the only way to keep that going is talking about what if we hadn't just kept it that moment you know what what could have happened and i think that'll be very exciting to watch and i'm very excited and it sucks i can't watch it for nine months <laughs> i know but it'll be it'll be interesting coming back to it and watching it without a lot of the context i think we should not rewatch before sunrise nine months from now i think we should try and treat it in the same way that you know it'll just be them having memories of their time in vienna together mm -hmm. we can only hold on to the memories we have of before sunrise yeah. and their relationship at that time. I think that'd be interesting. Um, but yeah, we have to wait nine months to get our next. What an exciting in. little experiment we're doing here. Yeah, I like it. It's a nice little series. Um, but all right. So out of how many horns of Willingtons cow out of five, they never went to the play. They Maybe they'll do the that. Play. in before sunset. I like that they brought it back. I like that they brought back at the end of the conversation. Oh, we never went to that play. They didn't just leave that thread hanging. Yeah, that was nice. It was a nice little realistic touch. But uh, I'm going to go to full five. Wow, full five. There's just nice. something about watching two people just talk and having it be a riveting conversation. There's something about riveting conversations in themselves that is probably like the most exciting or just about the most exciting my life could get without pushing my own perception to the extreme, like parachuting or some shit. But... <laughs> having like a riveting conversation or being part of a riveting conversation, even watching a riveting conversation is just, it's just the best. It's just so exciting. It's wonderful. It's, yeah. it's incredible. That's, that's, that's why I like a lot of single location things like, like the, like the single location mysteries and like uh 12 angry men and things like that. It's Cause it's, you're just taking characters, really well-written characters and just making them talk for an hour and a half. And I could just sit and watch that. And just be absolutely delighted by all the little nuances that the actors might give to it and things like that. And just watching them really embody a character that is just solely there to talk is very exciting. And I wish I had more riveting conversations like the one we're having now in my everyday life. But that's the doldrums of <laughs> living, I suppose. Trying to find time to have to just talk, you know. True. Very true. Let's hang out more, Ryan. In the right environment and right setting. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, we got, it's winter break for me. So now Hell I'm yeah. free from, yeah, doing all that bloody school work and whatnot. Bloody school. So. How many I'm horns of it, Wilmington's cow do you give it? I'm giving it 4.5. Right. I also, like you, I'm a big fan of people talking when what they're saying is very riveting. Mm -hmm. and compelling and insightful 
And yeah, the the conversations that they have in the film are those sort of deep conversations that are always fun to have with people. Yeah. Like with friends or with strangers, they're always just more interesting than the random, you know, small talk or just meaningless discussions about, I don't know, current events or whatever. Yeah. Having I those agree. deep, deep conversations. They're great. And this one conveyed all of that in just the most beautiful fashion, as we talked about. I mean, the acting was amazing. The writing as well was really fantastic. So, yeah, lots of love about Before Sunrise. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Well, that is all the time we have. If you'd like to give your thoughts on the show, you can email us at theboxofficeshowpod at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. If you like the show, please give us five stars whatever podcast app you're listening to, and be sure to tune in next week. Have a great rest of your day.